This is a dice of Brussels. Ah, uh, New Year, old problems. Um, I suppose if I were being polite, I'd say Happy New Year. Uh, but, uh, well, I'm not going to be because I'm not sure that it is a particularly happy New Year. Uh, you know, it's certainly new. It's the fourth year that I've uh, been recording this podcast, which is longer than I thought I would be at the beginning. And yet we have many of the same problems that we had last year, the year before and the year before that. So what I want to try and do in this episode is just catch up on what's uh, happened over Christmas, uh, think about what's coming up, and also uh, kind of set the scene for the next three months because uh, I'm going to try and do more regular uh, podcasts as we run up to the 29th of March which is when the UK is due to leave the EU. We'll talk about that phrasing in a bit. So, um, where are we? Uh, We're at the end of the Christmas break, and you'll recall the high drama of that uh, period before Christmas where we had the delay on the meaningful votes, the... uh, Tory leadership uh, motion of confidence that Theresa May won and then the packing up and going home for a couple of weeks to get away from it all and have a bit of a lie down. Now one of the logics I think or the key logic of Theresa May delaying that meaningful vote came down to a recognition Firstly, that she was going to lose that vote, lose it quite badly. And also that by delaying, she potentially made it more likely that she could sell the argument that it was going to be her deal or no deal uh, exit. Uh, that, you know, she has the only text on the table. Uh, MPs might not like it, but they haven't got an alternative text that exists, let alone one that's been agreed with the EU. And so if she leaves things a bit longer, then she uh, potentially strengthens her position. Now, uh, we talked about this in the last episode before Christmas, um, but, you know, the, it's clear that that is still uh, the kind of model that uh, Theresa May is going for. We saw that in her New Year's Day speech, uh, where she basically once again said, uh, We should all rally around my plan, and uh, because it's uh, the only one that there is. And there's no sign that she's going to, to move on that. And that's very much been the way that she has worked as a politician that she settles on a, a position and she sticks to it until she absolutely has to uh, step back uh, from it. Now, we're clearly not at that point of absolutely having to step back. What we know, though, is that she still doesn't have a majority for that plan. We know that Tories have not softened their opposition over the break. Uh, We know that Tory party members are uh, really quite happy to leave without a deal. And uh, the, um, what might you call it, the um, feeling that uh, no deal is a, a catastrophe is not that pervasive within the party. Now, uh, it's partly with that in mind that I think it's also worth thinking about the, the no deal preparation. We saw some allocation of funds to uh, more uh, preparation, more contingency planning uh, around Christmas. Uh, 
we've seen that on the European side as well. But uh, as the incident of the uh, Ramsgate Ferry uh, company, uh, which doesn't have a ferry uh, and doesn't have any uh, direct experience of running ferries, has shown uh, there are limits to what the government can do. So in a contingency, you need to think about what you can do yourself and what you rely on others to do. And the government is in a position where it has to rely on a lot of other companies to uh, deliver services and processes for it. And if those companies and businesses aren't ready, then the government isn't ready. So we can be pretty sure that no deal will come with uh, gaps, uh, things that haven't been thought about or that haven't been uh, adequately prepared for, um, because that's not in any one person's or organization's control. But uh, again, uh, whilst that may have painted the government in a bad light, uh, it doesn't change the uh, perception that in the end the UK will be all right. And that swing in rhetoric uh, towards the kind of sort of blitz spirit that we won't let them uh, grind us down uh, is uh, perhaps indicative of uh, a strengthening of the the resolve to, to see this through whatever and that just because it's terrible doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. Now uh, that as uh, campaigners have pointed out is a long way from saying that it's all going to be milk and uh, honey and that everything's going to be fine and it's going to be super simple and not a problem at all but in uh, the world of politics uh, these kind of things uh, often happen unfortunately. So the likelihood is still that when we get to the meaningful vote uh, in uh, maybe a fortnight's time, we're not still not entirely sure because we don't actually have a final date, we're going to find that the government is more than likely to lose that meaningful vote. That vote will be lost by probably about the same as it would have been lost back in December. Uh, but uh, the key issue still will be how much does Theresa May lose by and who are the people voting against her. If it's a small uh, loss, then uh, I think you're going to see sort of uh, the dark arts of whipping uh, coming to the fore, uh, individuals being lent on very heavily uh, and potentially quite personally uh, to change their vote for the good of the country and the good of their career, possibly the good of their marriage. Uh, that uh, all of the uh, little black books uh, that contain the dark secrets of the whips will be uh, produced and um, pressure will be applied. Now, I say that rather uh, cynically, but that's the simplest way to get uh, a small number of individuals to change their position rather than trying to go down the route of a wholesale change. If, however, you end up with a situation where you get a large loss in the order of, say, 100 or more uh, MPs voting uh, against the government, which is not at all uh, unlikely, then you're going to have to have a different kind of response from number 10. Now, here uh, we certainly have seen no change. The EU is not prepared to change the text of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, we see some rumours saying that perhaps they'll issue a declaration saying that they really don't want the backstop to last forever. But in legal terms, that will count for nothing. 
So all the things that might uh, potentially shift uh, large numbers of MPs, such as putting a, a, an explicit time limit on the backstop, are very much not going to happen on the EU side. Uh, and so it's a question of whether the fig leaf that uh, declarations might provide is enough for MPs to shift their position. So if we can't have a renegotiation, and if we think that there is uh, little chance that uh, that will result in uh, a shift of MPs' opinions, then uh, we have to think about what other options there are, and a number spring to mind. The first one, obviously, is that uh, the opposition try to call uh, emotional confidence in the government, uh, but the reason they didn't do that before Christmas, and the reason they almost certainly won't do it now, is that they'll lose. Uh, both Tory MPs and uh, DUP MPs have been very clear that their issue is around policy, not around uh, them being in government. And uh, risking a general election that they might very well lose is not at all on their agenda. So uh, they are staying in place. They are going to vote to support the government. Um, and there's nothing really that uh, the opposition uh, can do uh, on that front. We also know that uh, the Conservatives can't get rid of uh, Theresa May in a leadership contest because they had the one before Christmas and so they have to wait until next uh, December before they're allowed to do that again and uh, the final option on that front which is Theresa May resigning is not going to happen. If there's one thing that I've heard a lot in the last months is how resilient Theresa May is and that's because she's resilient. Uh, she has uh, every intention of seeing her project through that she is uh, both uh, bound by a sense of duty and by just politics to try and get to a situation where the UK leaves the EU uh, ideally with a deal. So uh, that's what her premiership is going to be about. So to uh, leave at the final uh, uh, stage uh, would be perverse and uh, counterproductive. So if we're not going down the election route, uh, maybe we're going down a referendum route. Uh, now this still to me seems very unlikely. We still see people talking a lot about it. We see a lot of support from uh, certain sections of the electorate. We've had some very useful data from uh, the ESRC's party members project yesterday, yesterday saying that uh, maybe three quarters of uh, Labour Party members uh, would support a uh, second referendum and most of them would vote to remain. So there certainly is a, a demand in uh, relevant constituencies, uh, with a small c, uh, but it's still hard to see how this is going to happen. Uh, Theresa May temperamentally still doesn't want to have a referendum. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't really want to have a referendum either because he's quite happy with where the thrust of policy is going, which is uh, leaving the EU and uh, you know he doesn't want to be having to uh, front a, a referendum campaign where he still doesn't really care about the issue that much. So uh, 
on neither the Conservative nor the Labour side of the bench, it's hard to see quite how we get to a position where a referendum is the price that is extracted for supporting the withdrawal agreement. Um, you know, that could be done through uh, an amendment for meaningful vote. But still, Labour look a long way from uh, going down that route, uh, even though their party line potentially uh, allows uh, that to happen. But as I've discussed with various uh, journalists over the past months, uh, Labour's party line allows them to do basically anything they want. And uh, their position is still best understood as their solution to Brexit is that there should be a Labour government. Um, anything beyond that is really up for grabs uh, at this stage and I, I wouldn't be wanting to put any more emphasis on any one preference than, uh, than that. So if a second referendum looks uh, unlikely, then I guess the only other option is revocation. And again, it's worth reminding ourselves that one of the things that happened in that tumultuous week before Christmas was the Court of Justice saying that the UK could unilaterally uh, stop its uh, withdrawal through Article 50. It didn't require the approval of anybody else. It just had to satisfy domestic uh, demands. So uh, as long as Parliament could get... Uh, the relevant piece of uh, decision-making done that it felt it had discharged its constitutional duties, then revocation is certainly possible. But that looks even less likely than a second referendum at this stage, simply because the sunk costs of the first referendum look uh, very substantial and uh, revocation doesn't solve uh, that much in the way of problems. Now, with all that in mind, part of Number 10's thought process might well be that whilst their deal is unpopular, all of the alternative uh, options that I've outlined are either impossible or highly improbable or uh, problematic in some other way. And that if you take that logic to its uh, end point, and if you, if you assume that MPs really don't like a no deal, then they will say uh, that whilst uh, the withdrawal agreement is not ideal by any stretch of the imagination, uh, it's better than any of the alternatives, or at least it's less bad than any of the alternatives. This really uh, kind of underpins why my feeling is that uh, we're still likely to see uh, parliamentarians backing of the withdrawal agreement on a subsequent vote. I've seen something this morning suggesting that uh, number 10 would go back and uh, take the vote 30 times if that's what it took to get it through. Uh, I've also seen uh, Tory backbenchers saying they'd be happy to vote against it 30 times. So we're still at a bit of an impasse and uh, the weakest point is still uh, on the uh, withdrawal agreement itself. That, that looks like the least problematic path for uh, moving things forward. I say that with a fairly low degree of confidence, just because I think there's so much uncertainty in the process that uh, we have to recognise uh, that a lot of very random things could happen between now, then and the end of March, quite frankly.
Now, with that said, it's probably useful to think a little bit about what does come beyond the meaningful vote, because we fixated a lot on that without really thinking about the rest of the process. Central uh, in this is a recognition that the meaningful vote is not sufficient by itself to ratify the withdrawal agreement. Even if it can get passed uh, by Parliament, then all that that does is move the UK on to the next stage, which is the, ratific uh, the approval of a piece of legislation, uh, a withdrawal uh, act, which is apparently sitting on a table uh, already in Whitehall, that will uh, embody the provisions of the uh, withdrawal agreement in UK law. So that's a standard piece of UK legislation. So that's got to go through the Commons, the Lords, back to Commons again, uh, get royal assent. Now, that will take some time, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, we know that we can do legislation uh, for legislative processes in the UK very, very quickly if need be. We've had instances in the 1990s uh, where the whole process has been done in uh, one or two days for counter-terrorism legislation. The government is not willing and possibly not able to do the process that quickly. You will see that there will be a lot more time given to debates. There will be a lot of amendments coming through uh, the Lords that will need reconciling with the Commons. And uh, the fight is not simply about a one-off vote uh, on a meaningful uh, on the meaningful vote, on the motion, uh, but also on that piece of legislation, which uh, potentially could complicate matters further. We also have at least half a dozen other pieces of primary legislation that are needed, whatever the outcome of the process. So we're seeing, for example, uh, the government talking again about retabling the trade bill the, that is needed uh, for the coming weeks. Um, so all that piece, those those pieces of legislation are needed uh, in addition and around uh, the central piece of legislation, and uh, all of that needs to happen by the 29th of March. Now, uh, this is really where a lot of the concern from those who know more than I do about parliamentary procedure uh, really come, that uh, the amount of time needed still to get necessary legislative instruments in place is very considerable and given the amount of time until the 29th of March that we're now talking sort of 80 uh, odd days that is not really very long uh, given the way that Parliament works uh, and the volume of work that is uh, required. Once the UK ratifies I think we then are still not completely out of the woods. Uh, the European Parliament has to agree the deal, uh, the Council has to agree the deal uh, in the EU. Both of those things shouldn't be problematic, but still will take some time. Uh, the EU has already done the preliminary steps for Council approval, and the European Parliament is not going to let itself be the one that sticks uh, a spoke in the wheels uh, if uh, the UK uh, approves uh, the text. So there are still things that had to be done on the European side, but very much less than uh, is required for the UK and very much less problematic that uh, already by signing this text, uh, the, the European institutions have uh, signalled that they are, are willing to approve it. 
Time then is going to be of the essence in the coming three months that uh, we're going to have to see uh, a whole lot more uh, uh, activity within Parliament. We're going to have to see a whole lot more uh, activity around no deal planning that uh, businesses and organisations are finding themselves uh, having to prepare for the possibility of a no deal because until there is something ratified, uh, there is no deal. Uh, and that is uh, unavoidable uh, to a very extensive extent. Now, uh, one of the things we haven't really talked about, which I think we, we should also mention, is the question of the 29th of March. Now, uh, that is the date when the UK is going to leave the EU unless everyone decides otherwise. And... Uh, We've all worked the assumption that that is the date that uh, the UK will leave. Uh, Theresa May is possibly the thing that she's been least flexible about. She's never indicated any willingness to ask for an extension, uh, let alone uh, to really fight for one. However, if this ratification process takes longer than expected, uh, if it goes down to the wire, then you may well find that the parties decide that it's in their mutual interest not to uh, end up with an accidental no deal when Parliament might be still just in the death throes of uh, trying to get the legislation passed uh, and through. So that doesn't really serve anyone's uh, interests very well. So there might be scope for a, a short uh, extension uh, past the 29th of March uh, if that were needed for ratification purposes uh, and it were evident that the UK were uh, was trying to uh, get the deal approved. But apart from that, the only other reason I think you'd see an extension is if the whole second referendum or indeed a general election for some bizarre reason uh, were to take place, something that looked like uh, generating a possibility of some really big change in the UK's position. All of those things are possible, and so much as uh, several of us have the 29th of March uh, inscribed on our hearts, uh, that is not totally locked in uh, unambiguously uh, at this stage. What is clear, though, is that the EU is not prepared to uh, add more time to Article 50 if it is for the purpose of the UK trying to renegotiate the deal. And I, I can't really stress this point enough, that renegotiation is not going to be on the table. Now, that's uh, partly... Uh, a negotiating device but also it's worth stressing that this is totally in keeping with the way that the EU has worked in the past where there has been uh, unhappiness with uh, a text that uh, if we think about all those referendums that uh, took place in the 90s and the, the noughties where countries like uh, Ireland or Denmark would vote against a treaty in each of those cases the EU was very clear that there wasn't going to be renegotiation uh, but what they were prepared to do was to provide declarations or statements to clarify what certain things did and didn't mean. So we saw that with uh, the Danes in '92 around Maastricht. We saw that with the Irish uh, on their referendum uh, defeats. Uh, 
All of which really highlights that an agreement, a text, is uh, the text that is there, that the difficulty of reaching an agreement uh, between all the parties is very high and that the willingness to reopen that and to revisit it is very low and that the dissenting party really has to uh, try and find its own way. Instructively, uh, it was both the Danes and the Irish who advanced the suggestion of what uh, clarifications were needed rather than the EU, that the EU didn't ride to the rescue. You know, they uh, said, OK, fine, we're happy to say that this is what this means, uh, but largely it's framed in terms of what uh, national governments did and didn't uh, understand by uh, particular provisions. So if you want a model, then I suggest that that would be the kind of model that would be uh, in play. What's different here is that there is a perfectly viable option for the EU that doesn't require the approval of the UK, which is a no-deal uh, Brexit. The, the EU doesn't want that particularly, uh, which is why it does still occasionally mutter that it might provide a declaration, but it's not held back by the lack of UK approval in the way that uh, the EU was uh, when it came to those treaty ratifications where it needed unanimous ratification in order to implement those treaties uh, in the next stage of operation. So the boot is even more firmly on the other foot uh, in this case than it is compared to those and so I think we have to be slightly cautious about how much we extrapolate uh, from those cases. All in all then uh, we have a really difficult year ahead. The coming month is going to be totally taken up with ratification. Uh, doubtless words like drama will be used. Uh, headache, uh, I think, will be the other word. Um, but the, the UK is going to have to make a decision about what it's doing in all of this. And I think when we get to the meaningful vote, uh, we'll have a much better idea about what the potential path that number 10 takes uh, will be. All the way through until March, we're going to have to keep an eye on planning for no deal. Uh, we're already seeing that ramping up quite a lot. And uh, we'll talk about that in coming weeks. And then uh, past uh, the date that the UK leaves, which I'm still largely assuming will be the 29th of March, we're going to have uh, an awful lot going on. That uh, This has all just been a prelude to the more difficult part of Brexit, which is about working out what the future relationship looks like. Now, either that is happening in the context of a transition period uh, running through to the end of 2020, uh, or it is happening in the context of a no-deal Brexit, in which case we're going to have an awful lot of emergency activity going on, uh, a really, really poor relationship uh, existing between the UK and the EU. Now, even in the more benign uh, scenario of uh, an agreement and a transition period, the rest of this year will be very tricky. It's clear that the UK hasn't settled on what it wants its relationship with the EU to look like. It's clear that the UK, uh, the EU hasn't uh, settled on one either. And we're going to see a lot of uh, 
debate, argument, fighting about what uh, the outlines of that process should look like. So lots to look forward to, lots to keep us busy and we will keep talking about it. As always, if you've got questions, if you'd like me to talk about particular aspects, then please do just drop me a line. You can do that uh, through our website, which is www.adiatofbrussels.com. I'll see you soon.